0: The title of this second talk is In Acceptance Lieth Peace. And I've taken those words from a poem written by Amy Carmichael, a woman whose life has meant more to me than I could ever possibly express. She was an Irish missionary who went to India back in the late 1890s and spent 53 years there. She died in India, never had a furlough, and she remained single all of her life and she knew i think a great deal about loneliness for many different reasons but this is just one of the many poems of hers that has had a profound impact on my own life and it it is where i got the title for my talk she uses the pronoun he i'm sure referring to herself he said i will forget the dying faces, the empty places, they shall be filled again. O oh, voices moaning deep within thee, cease. But vain the word, vain, vain, not in forgetting live peace. He said, I will crowd action upon action. The strife of faction shall stir me and sustain. O oh, tears that drown the fire of manhood, cease. But vain the word, Vain, vain, not in endeavor, lie of peace. He said, I will withdraw me and be quiet. Why meddle in life's riot? Shut be my door to pain. Desire thou dost befool me, thou shalt cease. But vain the word, vain, vain, not in aloofness, lie of peace. He said, I will submit, I am defeated. God hath depleted my life of its rich gain. O oh, futile murmurings, why will ye not cease? But vain the word, vain, vain. Not in submission lieth peace. He said, I will accept the breaking sorrow which God tomorrow will to his Son explain. Then deep, then did the turmoil deep within him cease, not vain the word, not vain, for in acceptance lieth peace. I think that one aspect of the pain of being alone is the thought, how did I deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? And we are greatly tempted to self-pity, which I think is one of the most deadly emotions in the world, because self-pity is a swamp of your own choosing that nobody can drag you out of. Now, what does self-pity come from? Basically, I believe that the source of self-pity is pride. Now, that may make some of you a little angry with me, but I know enough about it myself, because I certainly have been tempted to self-pity. And I think at the back of one's mind, when we start feeling very sorry for ourselves, and we sink into this little swamp and say, poor little me, and we have a little pity party for ourselves, and we think everybody else ought to join in the pity party, in the back of our minds is the thought, I deserved better than this. What have I done to deserve this? With the thought, I haven't done anything, and actually God has cheated me of something. You remember the story of Job. Satan approached God in heaven. And there's another one of those spiritual paradoxes, mysteries. Satan is permitted to enter the courts of heaven and to challenge God. And he challenged God about faith. And God called Job's attention Satan's attention. God called Satan's attention to his servant Job and he said, have you considered this man? And Satan said, I sure have. He said, does he serve you for nothing? He's a rich man. You've given him everything, but take away some of his riches and his lands and his houses and his servants and his children and then see how much he trusts you. And God accepted the challenge and gave Satan permission to do whatever he wanted to do short of taking Job's life. And so in quick succession Job lost everything. His houses, his lands, his herds, his flocks, his servants, his children, and finally the confidence of his wife. She said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? What else is there to do? So. The question is, will Job trust you? And Job did a lot of complaining. We read about the patience of Job. Well, I think if you study the book of Job, you don't find a very patient man. But Job's answer to God was, yes, I will trust you. In fact, he said, if you slay me, I will still trust you. And God, I believe, is always looking His eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth to find a man or a woman who will say yes, Lord, no matter what happens. And by yes, I mean an a voluntary, willed choice. I do not mean resignation. I don't mean a weary and sort of lazy acceptance of oh well, what else can I do? I don't have any choice sort of helpless acquiescence or worse a teeth gritting white knuckle kind of fist clenching well if this is what you're going to do to me I guess I have to take it and I don't have a choice but rather the acceptance that Amy Carmichael speaks of here it's not mere submission it is a voluntary yes lord yes lord way back in 1949 I was sitting on the side of a mountain on the edge of Portland, Oregon, Mount Tabor. It was a beautiful moonlight night. There was the warm fragrance of the Douglas firs and the warm breezes. And sitting about this far away from me was the man that I was desperately in love with and the man that I was desperately hoping was going to say on this idyllic night in this moonlight in this beautiful place with the majesty of Mount Hood there in front of us, will you marry me? And that's not what he said. He said, "Bet, have you thought about the fact that singleness is a gift? <laughs> well, the last gift in the world that I wanted was singleness. I had thought a lot about singleness. And he and I had talked a lot about singleness. And as a matter of fact, we had actually fallen in love uh, a few months before that, actually almost about a year before that experience and he had confessed his love for me, but he told me that as far as he knew, God wanted him to remain single, maybe for the rest of his life, but at least until he had been a missionary in the jungle long enough to, to assess the situation for himself and decide whether marriage would be a hindrance or a help. And I said, what do you mean singleness is a gift? And I should have known that Jim Elliot was not likely to make a startling statement like that without having a scripture right at his fingertips. So, of course, he opened, he didn't have to open his Bible, he had it all in his head. He said, you can check 1 Corinthians 7. It says in there that singleness is a gift. And the Apostle Paul was single when he wrote that, and he was strongly recommending that everybody ought to be single just like him. Before he finishes the chapter, however, he does acknowledge that each person has his own appropriate gift from God, some the gift of marriage and some the gift of singleness. And that it is within the context of that gift that we are to glorify God. Well, I had the gift of singleness a lot longer than I wanted it. Jim and I were actually married by the time we were both 26. In fact, we were married on his 26th birthday. I was 10 months older than he. But when we came out of that marriage ceremony, I remember thinking that now God had given me the greatest gift that any woman could ever desire, and I had received the gift of this man that I thought was just the most wonderful man in the whole world. I could never possibly love anybody else. And I came out of that marriage ceremony elated, just thinking about those words, till death us do part. That was undoubtedly 50 years down the road. But now I had the gift that I wanted, more than anything else, the gift of marriage. I'd had the gift of singleness and I'd had to say, yes, Lord. And I haven't got time to tell you that story now, but that story is told in my book called Passion and Purity. But it was five and a half years of having to say, yes, Lord, I will accept this loneliness and this singleness. But now God had given me the gift of marriage. Well, it was only 27 months later that I was standing by my shortwave radio one morning when I learned that my husband, Jim, was missing along with four other American missionaries. And the Lord gave me the scripture that I quoted earlier, Isaiah 43:2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And it was five days before we knew that the men were actually dead. And you can imagine the desperate praying that we five wives did during those days, asking God, begging God, pleading with God to bring our husbands back safely from what we all knew was a very dangerous venture. And ultimately when a ground party was able to reach the site where the men had camped, the report came again by shortwave to tell us that they were all speared to death. And I realized over a long period, certainly it was not the first thought that struck me, but gradually the realization grew that God had given me a third gift, which was widowhood. Certainly the last gift that any woman would ask for. I hope that before I finish with these talks, I'll be able to at least help you to understand why this makes sense to me. Maybe it'll never make any sense to some of you to think of singleness or widowhood as a gift. But it was the context of the will of God for me at that point. God had permitted this thing to happen, and now it was my job either to say, yes, Lord, or no, Lord. Now, if I had shaken my fist in God's face, or gritted my teeth and said, well, there's nothing else I can do about it, I would have still had to go through the agonies of widowhood. So I only had two choices. It was either yes, Lord, or no, Lord. But way back when I was 12 years old, I had prayed that God would work out his whole will in my life at any cost. And it was as if the Lord was saying to me, Did you want to rescind that prayer? Did you want to renege on your promise to do my will? Whose will did you ask for? And I said, well, yours, Lord. So I began to see that it was within the context of being a widow that I was to glorify God. And over these years, I have seen that the experiences through which God took me, the deep water through which I had to go when He walked with me, the hot fires, whatever else, whatever other metaphors you would choose to describe the experiences of widowhood, it is that very deep valley, deep water, hot fire that gave me a platform, that gave me a responsibility, and a privilege of speaking to others in the same situation. Well, that was 1956 when I became a widow for the first time and I was married again in 1969. That was the miracle that I was sure could never happen. Uh, I thought it was a miracle I got married the first time. I couldn't imagine that anybody would want to marry me the second time. And this amazing, wonderful man came along And I knew that I would probably be widowed a second time in the ordinary course of human events because my second husband was 18 years older than I. But I didn't expect it to be quite so soon. We learned three years later that he had cancer and he died after four and a half years. And so God had given me the gift of marriage the second time and then he gave me the gift of widowhood the second time. And now, Uh, Ever since 1977, I've been married to Lars Grinn, and as far as I know, he's feeling fine tonight, as you could see on camera, and he's still back there, so I'm grateful for that. And I think of of what a gift Lars is to me. And actually, when Lars was courting me, and he did so in a very gentlemanly, um, you might say southern slow way, I mean, he is a bit laid back, as you can probably tell, But he moved with deliberate speed. If he had done it any other way, he would have scared me off. But it was with deliberate speed that he was courting me. And as I could see that he was beginning to close in for the kill, (laughs) I began to pray for God's answer, because I had absolutely no idea of ever getting married the third time. And it just didn't fit my idea of what I was supposed to do, it certainly was not anything that I had imagined that God could possibly want me to do. And my answer would have been an, a flat no, except that I felt that there was a still small voice saying to me, possibly I'm trying to give you a gift. Have you considered that possibility? And I said, no, Lord, I really hadn't considered that possibility. And the Lord was saying, well, you jolly well better. And so I began to pray for an answer if, when, if and when Lars did come around and pop that question, I needed to have God's answer. And one of the scriptures that he gave me, because I always go back to this straight edge in order to straighten out my crooked thinking, and it was in 1 Corinthians 12 that I found this verse. Men have different gifts, but it is the same Lord who accomplishes his purposes through them all. And I began to see that although Lars could not do all the things that Jim could do, and Lars couldn't do all the things that Ad could do, Ad couldn't do all the things that Jim could do either, and Lars could do some things that neither Jim nor Ad could do. I was making these odious comparisons. People have said to me, oh, you would never think of comparing your husbands, would you? And I said, of course I would. I do it all the time. (laughs) And as Lars will tell you, the most perfect men in the world are your your wife's first and second husbands. (laughs) But I don't think I do make those odious comparisons too often, do I, darling? (laughs) Um, But that verse was pretty important. Men have different gifts. It is the same Lord who accomplishes his purposes through them all. And so I saw that God was asking me to accept a totally new gift, unexpected, unasked, but it was going to be within the context of being the wife of Lars Grinn, that I was to glorify God. And the gift of widowhood or the gift of loneliness is in fact a, a gift given for the sake of the body, body with a capital B, I mean the body of Christ. You know, God doesn't give us any gifts just for ourselves alone. If you have the gift of a wonderful baritone voice, maybe you sing in the shower and you probably enjoy that, but I would hope that you sing for somebody else too and when you stop and think about it there isn't a single gift that any of us has that's just for ourselves alone it is to be received with thanksgiving offered to God and used for the sake of the body and every gift carries with it not only the privilege but also a responsibility and I think of my friend Daphne Cronin she is back there in a wheelchair on the back row and I didn't know Daphne very well at all before she had her accident. She was headed for the Olympics in horsemanship. And how long ago was it, Daphne? Two years, has it been two years now? She was going over a jump. I think it was one of the last jumps in one of those preparatory events before she was to go to the Olympics. And the horse fell on her. And so she is now quadriplegic. Now, Daphne told me a wonderful story. She told me how there was one woman in that hospital, in the rehab hospital, who just gave herself to Daphne to bring her back to all the capability that the muscles that she had left were capable of doing. Was her name Brenda? Is that correct? And Daphne said that Only God knew what Brenda had meant to her. Well, lo and behold, the next year, it was Brenda who was ill. And Daphne said, I found myself the one at the end of the bed. And Brenda was in the bed. And I wish I had more time to tell you more details of this story, but the point I'm trying to make is that Daphne had accepted this thing that had happened to her, such a totally devastating thing, and had offered it back to God, maybe not even in so many words, I'm not really sure about that. But she had accepted it. There was no question about that. She gave a testimony in our church about how God had enabled her to accept this thing. And then God gave her responsibility. Responsibility for somebody else. And Daphne said, it was a wonderful thing to see the progress, the leaps and bounds that I made in physical progress because I was giving myself to Brenda. Now she has a platform that I don't have. I have never been ill, not to mention paralyzed. But every gift is a privilege given to us by God. Every privilege carries responsibility. And in every situation, there are lessons for us to learn. Lessons which absolutely cannot be learned in any other way. Now, I know that's true in my own life. I could not possibly know God in the way that I have known Him because of the loneliness that I have experienced. In Romans 14, verses 7 to 9, we read this. No one of us lives, and equally no one of us dies for himself alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Whether, therefore, we live or die, we belong to the Lord. This is why Christ died and came to life again to establish his lordship over the dead and the living. I imagine that some of you have had an experience that to you is worse than death. You would rather have died than have gone through that experience. And I suppose that that thought must have crossed Daphne's mind a few times in those agonizing struggles. And it's not as though they're ever going to be over. But the Lord didn't give you that privilege because he said, I want to teach you something. I want to reveal myself to you in a way that you would not have eyes to see, or ears to hear, or a heart to understand without going through this wilderness, this deep water, this dark valley, this hot fire. Well, think about the gifts that God has given to you. Will you believe in God's love and purpose? Will you seek his instruction in it? For example, if you have right now some new experience of helplessness and dependency. All of us have experiences when we feel totally helpless. And to be quite honest, I felt very helpless yesterday. I was very tired because the earlier part of this week was rather rigorous with other things in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we traveled on Wednesday and yesterday, I was trying to get myself prepared and psyched up and finally prepared for tonight, and I just said, Lord, I don't know whatever gave you the idea that I could do this, and I certainly felt that I couldn't do it, and I know that I could not have done it without your prayers, and I know many of you have been praying for me and the prayers of other people, and without my own prayers and my husband's prayers. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. It's only when we abide in the vine. Jesus said, without me, you could do nothing. Now, when we come to this position of helplessness and dependence, remember that Jesus has been there too. Jesus was in such an agony over the conflict of his own will with the will of his fathers that he swept great drops of blood But he came to the point where he said, not my will, but thine be done. Now, lest you think that I'm some kind of a paragon um, without any feelings or that I'm made of cement, I'm not going to read you one of my love letters to Jim, but I thought I'd read you just a portion of one of his to me. During this long period when we were agonizing, because of loneliness for each other, missing each other to the point where it was, I was almost physically sick at times. And he wrote me this. He said, Your sense of loss at our not being able to share things these past few months is not new to me. He had left for Ecuador, South America, and he was writing these exciting letters about his journey by boat down the west coast of uh, Central and South America and all the wonderful new experiences in Ecuador. And I was just in an agony to think that he was going through all that. As a single man, and here I was back in New Jersey. He said, I know this feeling and I often tell him about it. And then the realistic facing of non-accomplishment comes to me and crushes to silence, all telling. For if really we have denied ourselves to and from each other for his sake, then should we not expect to see about us the profit of such denial? And this I look vainly for. It comes to this, I am a single man for the kingdom's sake, for the sake of the body, in other words. It's more rapid advance, it's more potent realization. And then skipping some, he says, there is this somewhat philosophical realization that actually I have lost nothing. We may imagine what it would be like to share a given event and feel loss at having to experience it alone, but let us not forget the loss is imagined, not real. I imagine peaks of enjoyment when I think of doing things together, but let not the hoping for it dull the doing of it alone. Let not the hoping for it dull the doing of it alone." And then he says, let not our longing slay the appetite of our living. A pretty well-expressed letter for a love letter, isn't it, for a guy who is only Let's see, how old was he? 25, I guess, at that time. So there is a world of difference between a yes, which doesn't have any agony attached to it, and a yes, which means agony. I've described, I've given you Jim's description of his own feelings, and I think I was probably going through worse agonies than he was. I wasn't having all the fun that he was and the distractions. But Jesus was on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, but finally coming to the place of saying yes to his father's will. It's one thing to agonize, it's another thing to respond with bitterness and resentment and anger. And you and I have that choice. In First Peter the first chapter. He's speaking to exiles, people who must have been very lonely, very cut off, very alienated. And he comforts them with these wonderful opening words. He's speaking to the... He tells them the places where they live that he's writing to. And he said, You're chosen of old in the purpose of God the Father, hallowed to His service by the Spirit and consecrated with the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. You are under the protection of His power, until salvation comes. That's verse 5. And then he says in verses 6 and 7, This is cause for great joy, even though now you smart for a little while, if need be, under trials of many kinds. Even gold passes through the assayer's fire. And more precious than perishable gold is faith which has stood the test. These trials come so that your faith may prove itself worthy of all praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And I would remind you of the verse that I gave you in my first talk. Since he himself has passed through the test of suffering, he is able to help those who are meeting their test now. Whatever your experience of loneliness may be, whatever wilderness God is calling you to go through, Remember, he went through it first. There's an old hymn that says, Christ leads us through no darker rooms than he went through before. I can testify with all my heart that in acceptance lieth peace. And by acceptance, I mean a simple, willed act of saying, Lord, I don't like it, I don't understand it. I don't know how I'm going to bear it. But by Your grace, I'll take it. My answer is yes. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for My Granny's Inspiration. Until then, remember... The Eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.